or whether you're a fan or not, uh, football, the sport that our nation should be so proud of, has once again been dragged through the mud. Uh, Over the last uh, 10 days, I think you could probably say, oh yes, last night was a slight blip in a light, you know, and so on. But, you know, over the last 10 days, I think we can all agree that it has probably reached an all-time low. Last week we saw now, the, well it's 10 days ago, the, the former manager, Sam Allardyce, being secretly filmed. And, and that kind of film exposed him kind of showing off that he knew how to break all these kind of financial regulations. And of course he immediately had to go. Now if you would just go back a week from that point, um, Sam Allardyce was quoted, and I saw in the, I think it was the Telegraph and the Times, that he was the happiest man in the whole of the country. I'm not sure how he worked for that, but he was, uh, so he said, and he was the proudest man in the country. He had won the only game that he had managed uh, for the England team, and he was a very happy man indeed. My point is this, how the mighty fall. This section of 2 Samuel today is like two weeks ago in the life of manager Sam Allardyce. It was a very, it's a great high point what we see here today. Chapters 8 and 10, the passage that we're going to be looking at, they depict victory, they depict kindness and love and care. A high point for God's anointed, namely King David. He's king of God's earthly kingdom here. But next week, we will see very clearly how the mighty fall. Now, this may be a high point in 2 Samuel, but don't think that the rest of what we've seen so far is anything near dull. The book begins, and Saul and Jonathan both die. They've been very hostile to what they've tried to kill David. And David mourns their passing. He does so because they are God's anointed, and David is a man after God's own heart. And what results from that is David is then anointed king over the southern kingdom of Judah. And you have to remember at this point, the kingdoms are divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, with their respective tribes and their respective capital cities. Big picture, these early chapters of 2 Samuel that we've looked over over the last three weeks, they, they really depict the uniting of those two kingdoms in David's reign under God's rule. But as we've seen, that has not been a simple process at all. And when David was crowned king, David was from the tribe of Judah. But once again, we see a a rebellion taking place. The Benjaminites, they rebel, chapters 2 and 3, long war. And in the end, David succeeds in uniting all the tribes and the nations, northern and southern. And we see that at the beginning of chapter 5, if you want to recall that uh, in your notes. Now, last week we saw David... Uh, And again, it's not a simple process. In the end, he manages to bring the Ark of the Covenants into the conquered Jerusalem. As we saw, this fulfills many of those covenant promises that God had made so long before. God is, in a sense, flexing his sovereign pecs here. Uh, He's demonstrating that whoever you think you are, however big you think your military arsenal is, you are no match for Yahweh. Yahweh is God's covenant name. It's uh, written in our Bibles. It's just the capitals of Lord. But this is the covenant Lord of the whole universe. There's no match. God's anointed Messiah, King David, is enthroned in the capital of the united kingdom of God. That is Jerusalem. And the Ark of the Covenant is there. Of this vivid reminder That God is powerfully present amongst his people. Oh, it was there for the people of God, of course. 
but it was also there for the watching world. The nations around, they could see that his loving covenant promises stand. You don't trifle with this God. Now you get to chapter 7 last week. We just finished with that and Ash took us through it really wonderfully. And you really should just be going, wow. I mean, it's just mind-blowing. It's amazing. Because chapter 7 is probably the center point of the, probably this whole section of the Bible. Uh, never mind being, if you like, the theological center of 2 Samuel itself. It's so important and it's so beautiful in so many ways. Theologically rich. By that I mean it's so God-focused. Uh, it's a mind-blowing, in a sense, a tete-a-tete between God and David here. Yahweh, that is the covenant Lord, makes promises to David, revealing the nature of this united kingdom that will be established. God's anointed, King David, responds how he ought to respond, with prayer and praise. And that leads us to our passage today. The kingdom has been promised by the covenant-keeping Lord. What do you think will happen next? Our God's promises, like the promises of a a Donald Trump, for example. I don't usually make political statements here at all. It just seems so easy. I mean, there we go. You know, will the promises of chapter 7 actually come about? After all, you look back at chapter 7, you think those promises, they're a little bit grandiose, aren't they? I I mean, really, will all of those things come about? Might they get changed, you know, like in politics, a little bit watered down over time? We can't manage it in this kind of, you know, kind of financial year. Will they just be ignored? No, what we see, and it's your first point on your outlines there, you see the covenant kingdom of God is established in chapter 8. Now, now chapter 8, it really marks an end point to a major section, uh, the first section of 2 Samuel, chapters 1 to 8. It is a historical record as we go through it in a moment. You'll see that. But don't think for a moment that it is dull or too removed from us. I hope we can see that. More than anything else, this should remind us that God, under his anointed Messiah, has established his kingdom. What was promised to David was to a great degree fulfilled in David's reign as king. But the important thing to note is Not finally and fully and completely. Not in every single detail that was promised. I mean, at that point you have to ask, has has God let his servant Messiah down? Is God actually more like Donald Trump than we first thought? Well, of course not. You see, because 2 Samuel 8 essentially goes both ways. Yes, it's a historical record of God establishing his kingdom, but it's also, as the commentators, it's a lovely phrase, they call it a prophetic preview of God's kingdom when it comes in its final and full, completed form, when we meet the anointed king, our Messiah, the Lord Jesus, face to face. It's a prophetic preview of that. So how is the kingdom of God established here in this chapter, in in chapter 8 of of 2 Samuel, under the Messiah King David? Well, I think we've seen there's a lot of conflict, isn't there? And the first thing, let's just cast our eyes down. Chapter 8, those early verses there, you'll see we're taken through four battles, four victories as well for God's people. But the repeated refrain is that the enemies of God are, um, literally it is struck down. Uh, The word in our translations, look at verse 2 and verse 3, you'll see the word there is defeated. 
David wins victories and, and, you know, don't overlook the fact that the massive nature of this. Look at verse 2, for example, 1, for example, Philistines. Think of all the trouble we've had with them so far. And it's just, oh, yeah, they're struck down. Now, verse 2, the Moabites. Hadadezer of Zobar in verse 3 and 4 and Aram Damascus in verse 5. And then you get to the end of the chapter in verse 13 and 14 of Edom as well. And though the bloodshed, think about it for a moment, will raise a host of questions. And the methodology of the bloodshed, that will raise even more questions. The main point here is no matter the size of the army, however strong they may seem, they're no match for David, the Messiah. His rule and therefore God's kingdom rule. We see here, note, you may not get the geography, but if you go to verse 3 and 4, that is as far north as you can possibly imagine of God's enemies. In verse 13 and 14 of Edom, as far south as you could possibly imagine. The point is, geographically anyway, there's no match. In the previous chapter, in chapter 7, God had promised David rest from his enemies. Chapter 8, job done. Wherever David reigns, God's kingdom rule holds sway. God's kingdom is being established here in what you might call, and I think it's a helpful way, in its introductory form. It is clear from the outset that not all wanted to submit to the rule of God's kingdom. The nations described in chapter 8 who were defeated by David and his fighting men. These nations have been hostile to God and his people for generations. And therefore they've been ultimately hostile to God himself and his rule in their lives. So David the Messiah King is, we have to understand this, he is rightly and justly striking them down. They are struck down and defeated because they stand against the loving rule of their creator. And don't think that this pattern of conflict is alien to us today. Please listen here. You see, in the establishment of God's kingdom today, bloodshed is equally necessary. And surely the cross of Jesus has shown us that no one defeats the enemies of God without blood being shed. I don't know where you're at yourself with God and in your relationship with God. You're just sort of sitting here going, oh, this is an absolute load of rubbish. I want you to realise people don't just slip into the kingdom of God. The pattern of conflict that we see here continues today in every way. But you see, it is Christ Jesus who has gone into the battlefield of our lives and defeated all of his and our enemies, as Ash pointed out earlier on. It is his blood that has been poured out on the eternal battlefield of God's kingdom when he willingly died on the cross. See, this pattern of conflict continues to establish the kingdom of God. Blood is shed. Enemies are defeated. But God rules and reigns. Look at verse 6 and verse 14. It's an interesting little uh, kind of refrain that goes through this chapter. Uh, They show that although David is the kind of, he's the man on the ground, the physical anointed Messiah. Look at the one who is credited with the victory. It is the Lord. 
He's the one who's in power. He's the rule behind this. He is establishing his kingdom as he promised he would. Oh, but the astute among you, as you'd have heard this read, will have realised that bloodshed isn't always necessary. Did you realise that? Notice, um, I think it's, it's two, isn't it? Uh, the king of Hamath in verse 9 and 10. Cast your eyes down there, if you may. Verse 9 and 10 of chapter 8. There's two. The king of Hamath. I think here, he is both an exception and an example to us. Because he hears, doesn't he, how um, Hadadezer is defeated by David under God's hand. And so what does he do? Instead of getting his armies ready, and you kind of with... At this point, you might have heard through the local news what was happening to all these opposition of David. And you probably think, well, should we even bother with swords? We're going to be defeated anyway. Or what do we do? Can you imagine getting your army ready to take on David? Instead, who does the right thing in a sense? Instead of going into battle with inevitable slaughter, he, instead he lays down his arms. And he submits to God's kingdom rule. Two's response, I think, is a helpful reminder to all of us. We can either come to God and submit to him and to his Messiah's rule, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. Or we can be struck down and be subdued in judgment. Two is, I think, the ray of hope in this chapter. And we must pray that many that we know and love will do likewise. And maybe that needs to be you today. If you have never submitted yourself before the Lord. To remind us that none of us can look at this historical bloodshed or even at our own lives and claim that God is victimising us in any way. We have hope and our hope rests in the conquering Messiah, Jesus Christ. And we can be too like, if you like, and lay down our arms before God and submit to his loving rule in our lives. If you haven't. Why don't you speak to one of us today? A quick note, though, about David before we move on to the following chapter, because I think we need to see that David, though amazingly used by God here, who was a man after God's heart in so many ways, he's not the perfect king. We mustn't see him in that way, certainly next week. In his treatment of the armies that he conquers, not all he did was right whether it's his use of chariots and hamstring and so on that you see, there's various kind of pointers that show, yeah, he's not doing everything perfectly right. Look at the Moabites, for example, in verse 2. You may cringe as you look at the way that he kills, uh, you know, two-thirds and, and preserves a, a third, strangely measured out with a piece of rope. You know, it's all a bit bizarre, but I want us to make a couple of notes on this. Firstly, note that God does, takes no pleasure in the suffering of others. In the death of anyone. Ezekiel 18, 23. Look at it when you get home if you want. Uh, it's clear on that. It says, God does not delight in the suffering of anyone, and nor should we. But David was establishing God's kingdom here. What we see here, what we read of here, is justice is being done. Now, David is not the perfect one who is exercising justice perfectly. Only King Jesus does that. But be warned, but also assured with this. Jesus, like David, will establish his final kingdom rule and act in judgment in a day to come. And that judgment of King Jesus will be of a greater magnitude. But be assured in this that Jesus will judge perfectly. 
Go back to the Moabites for a moment if you can, verse 2. Note that God's judgment did not come for a time. Oh, you may be sat here and thinking, oh, you know, they always talk about judgment in the future. Oh, it's a bit kind of scary. And, you know, you know, God just seems a bit benign. He seems like a nice grandfather figure to me. Well, if you are thinking that, that God is tame, you may be thinking, oh, what I do and the way I live has no consequences and therefore I'll just carry on. Well, think about the Moabites for a moment, because they, for a long time, for generations, had mocked God and his people. And you could go the whole way back through uh, kind of biblical history, certainly to the book of Numbers, and God in his mercy had been incredibly impatient with the Moabites, giving opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. He wanted them to submit to his loving kingdom rule. But a day will come. It did for the Moabites here. And it will do for us. And that is what Jesus rising from the dead confirms to each one of us. That he will one day return to judge. One day God will judge the world in righteousness. Acts 17.31 says. Please be careful that we do not abuse the patience of God. Surely what happens to the Moabites here is a sobering warning to all of us. So uh, our first point is this, the covenant kingdom of God is being established, and it's being established here in justice, isn't it? And what follows, actually, is interesting, in the next couple of chapters, we see uh, the other side of the coin in the establishment of God's kingdom. Chapters 9 and 10, 8 spoke mainly of justice, but these 9 and 10 chapters, they speak of the righteous kindness of God being shown by the Messiah King David as the kingdom is being established. What we have are really two responses to covenant kindness. In chapter 9, we see it is received, it is welcomed, it is appropriately responded to. But in chapter 10, we see the other side. We see the covenant kindness of God is just utterly rejected. Let's look at those two now together. Uh, Let's look at uh, our second point. Chapter 9, we've heard it read. Let's look at covenant kindness received. It's there on your outlines. Now, chapter 9, you have to say it's quite a beautiful chapter, isn't it? Now, I know I sound completely effeminate as I say that. Uh, Mock me all you like, but that is a right thing to describe this chapter. It is beautiful. It is godly. It is right. It is good. Because this is an account of covenant loyalty. And I want us to carefully understand why this is so important for us. This chapter asserts... Uh, that life in covenant relationship with God, that is being in his eternal kingdom, that should give us a firm place to stand, to live in this life. We should know the sense of privilege and security as we know this covenant kindness of God, but it also should give us a great sense of delight and joy as well. So whatever is going on in your life right now, know this. If you are a Christian here today in covenant relationship with God, rest in what you see here. Delight in what you see here. Look at me with uh, look with me at the first couple of verses, four verses. Notice the word kindness as it crops up again and again. It's that Hebrew word Ash has pointed out to us a number of times. It goes through this book. It's the word Hesed. Hesed. You've got to have a bit of guttural there. Yeah, and it is essentially. The godly covenant kindness. 
It's a love that is willing to commit itself to another through a promise that is solemnly recorded and witnessed. Now David here, in these first couple of verses, look down at verse 1 and 2 there, he's recalling a promise, a covenant promise that he's made maybe 15 to 20 years before uh, to Jonathan. Why don't you just flip back with me to 1 Samuel chapter 20. 1 Samuel chapter 20. That's on page 292. I'm going to read from verse 14. This is Jonathan saying to David, 1 Samuel 20 verse 14. But show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live, so that I may not be killed and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. Not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So... Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan made David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. Now flip back to chapter 9 now of 2 Samuel. You see, but because of the covenant that was established all those years before, David is searching for someone to show this covenant kindness to that he has promised to live out. Notice, time does not diminish the power of this covenant love. Notice that falling out of love within a covenant relationship doesn't seem an option, does it? Now, David is he constrained to act with devoted love, showing us the power of this covenant that he's established. It's not like the love you see in the movies, is it? Or on TV programs. My wife and I, Sarah, we're, we're currently watching the uh, TV series Nashville. Some of you would encourage us to watch it. It is great. It is very easy viewing. I say that pejoratively, but you can read into that as you like. You have to really love country music. I have to say that. And leather boots. I mean, that's pretty much it. Um, I don't love country music, but I watch it, and it's really good in many ways. But the accepted norm, and it's very tame, there's not kind of any explicit stuff going on, but the accepted norm of the characters is simply that they just sleep with anyone, whoever, whenever. The covenant of marriage is, in a sense, like an inconvenient piece of paper. That is true of that TV show, and it's true of pretty much everyone else. There was a stat going around, wasn't there, of all the relationships within the TV show in the series of Friends. Do you remember that, of years ago? And how many people? It was just disgusting. It was an accepted norm, norm though. Covenant love, this hesed kindness that David is seeking to exercise, it is a, it is a love that is willing to bind itself to another. It's a, it's, a, it's a love that's willing to make a promise and stick to it. And the important thing is, it's so the other person might stand secure in that love. That is the power of covenant kindness. It's why we keep the vows that we make, not because we feel like it. We keep the vows to be faithful. And simply because we have promised David, we see it worked out here in chapter 9, is he finds Mephibosheth. I'm going to say that wrong at some point, but there we go. He's the lame, easily forgotten son of Jonathan. Three quick things about the covenant kindness. Look at verse 7 with me. 
Three very quick things. Notice the protection of this covenant kindness. David says to Mephibosheth, do not be afraid. Mind blown that. Uh, Mephibosheth should have been very afraid. He stands as the offspring of one of David's enemies. He should have been petrified. But David says, do not be afraid. Secondly, notice the provision of the covenant kindness. Again, verse 7, David says, he will restore the land of of Jonathan to David, the land of Saul. What provision? Thirdly, the position of covenant kindness. There again in verse 7, David says to Mephibosheth, you will eat at my table. Please realise What David is doing here is so, 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 so beyond what was required of him in that covenant that he's established back in 1 Samuel 20. He doesn't just spare the life of Mephibosheth. He heaps all this kindness on him. David absolutely could have enacted justice upon him like we've seen in chapter 8 again and again. He could have struck down the offspring of his enemy. Certainly, if we think what Mephibosheth was expecting, look as he bows in verse 6 of chapter 9. He thinks he knows what is to come. David not only protects, he restores the inheritance of Mephibosheth. He saves him from death and prepares a table for him. And in this... David surely is acting as a small reflection of the covenant kindness that we know in our Messiah King, namely Jesus, who saves us, yeah? And prepares a table for us in his eternal kingdom. Who's the recipient, though, of this covenant kindness? Oh, here in chapter 9, it's Jonathan's son, isn't it? Mephibosheth, he's lame in both his feet, verse 3. Uh, Why is the description of his lameness in both feet repeated there? Look at verse 13, it's there again. Why does the writer stress that? Mephibosheth, you know, title would have been his son of a prince uh, or something like that, but he's helpless and he is dependent. Worse than that, he's Jonathan's son, an enemy of David. Uh, David has made this absurd promise, though, 15, 20 years before. He, He promised kindness to his enemy. Notice that this is not normal practice. It wasn't expected. It should not have happened in many ways. But this covenant kindness is essentially the shelter that preserves Mephibosheth. I don't think we'll ever appreciate what is going on here until we realise who is the author of that kindness. What is the source of that kindness? Of course it is God, isn't it? And like Mephibosheth, we have to stand back and be amazed at God's love. We have to to realise that we have no rights, like Mephibosheth, to be recipients of God's kindness and his love. We have no right to sit at the table that's been prepared for us in glory. And in that way, we are all, if we are Christians here today, the Lord's Mephibosheths. For we shelter undeservedly under the covenant established by Christ. So we've seen the covenant kingdom of God established, the covenant kindness received by Mephibosheth here. Let's turn now lastly to chapter 10. As we see the covenant kindness rejected. I realise we haven't read chapter 10. I'm going to read a few verses now and give you a kind of gist of what's going on. Let's read 
together. Chapter 10, we're on page 313, 2 Samuel chapter 10. Let's read together. In the course of time, the king of the Ammonites died, and his son Hanan succeeded him as king. David thought, I will show kindness to Hanan, son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent a delegation to express his sympathy to Hanan concerning his father. When David's men came to the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite commanders said to Hanan, their lord, do you think David is honouring your father by sending envoys to you to express sympathy? Hasn't David sent them to you only to explore the city and spy it out and overthrow it? So Hanan seized David's envoys and shaved off half of each man's beard, cut off their garments at the buttocks and sent them away. When David was told about this, he sent messengers to meet the men and they were greatly humiliated. And the king said, stay at Jericho till your beards have grown and then come back. What a wonderful story about beards. <laughs> what David is doing here though is, is just really, it's really good foreign politics. And if you guys in the foreign office will appreciate what's going on here. He's sending his diplomats He's sending him off to the Ammonites to show kindness and respect. Doesn't like him, but he does that. It's the right thing to do. And this kindness is thrown back into David's face as his men are humiliated. Culturally humiliated, we don't particularly get it, but you know, you know, whatever it is. What follows from these verses is essentially a montage, a very clipped montage of battle. Uh, we get Hanan of the Ammonites and he kind of teams up with Hadadezer of the Arameans, and they stir one another up against David. But even after initial defeat at <coughs> the hands of God's uh, and David's army, uh, they keep coming back for more. They scoff at God's rule again and again, and, and eventually they are crushed. Against all odds, they are struck down. It's been helpful to hear that Ash has been looking at Psalm 2 throughout the service. There's a reason for that, because this is very much an echo of that Psalm 2. They scoff at God's rule, and he strikes them down. God is mentioned just once in this whole chapter. It's extraordinary. And it comes from the most unlikely source. Turn with me to verse 12 if you can. Here we see Joab. Leader of God's uh, men cries out, Be strong and let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. The Lord will do what is good in his sight. It's slightly strange and slightly disturbing that Joab is the only one who would mention God here. We've seen that throughout 2 Samuel. He's a really hard man. He's a bloodthirsty man. He's quite vindictive as well. But God can use even a Joab to teach his people here. In such crazy circumstance, he's the only one who trusts the providential hand of God. Now, I want us to finish today, if I can, by, by teeing up next week. I hope that is helpful, and I do hope you come back to hear more. Because in chapter 9 and 10, what we've seen here today is David is painted as this kind of hesed, kindness-doing king. In chapter 9, he's, remember, he's faithful and loyal to the covenant promise that he's made back to Jonathan. And practically then in chapter 10, he lives that out. He shows covenant kindness to the, even the nations around them who are totally undeserving. 
But note the contrast. Today we have seen David, the Lord's Messiah, being controlled by the covenants in his life. Next week, in chapter 11 and 12, we will see him being controlled by something completely different. Chapters 9 and 10, David spares life and he mourns life. Chapters 11 and 12, next week, we'll see he tramples on life and destroys life. As we finish, remember God's kingdom is being established. Chapter 8 is that historical record of God fulfilling his promises to David by establishing his earthly kingdom. But it also, as I said, points forward. It's that prophetic preview. It points forward to the final and eternal kingdom of God that is established in Jesus Christ as he died on a cross and rose again. And I guess the question for us is left hanging like this. God's final kingdom is coming. And you will either meet the Messiah, King Jesus. You will either meet him in judgment and his justice. Or you will meet him in his love and his covenant kindness. That is unmerited. But eternally beautiful. And the question is, what will it be for you? Will you receive or reject the covenant kindness of Jesus, our loving Messiah King? Let's pray as we close. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you very much for these uh, stories of history which are true. They provide for us in such vivid detail that you are a just and holy God who is rightly to be feared, yet you are also a covenant, kind and loving God who gives us opportunity after opportunity to come and submit ourselves to your kingly rule. May we do that as we trust in the Lord Jesus, our covenant Messiah King. Amen.